Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Gemma Crane. I'm chatting with producers Kate Lennon and James Mitchell about season two of Hidden Assets, which will be on RT1 and RT Player this Sunday, the 3rd of September at half nine. Thank you so much for uh, chatting with us. It's it's uh, very exciting to have a new season of Hidden Assets out. Oh my God, I'd say there's there's this drama, twist. <laughs> turns emotional intensity workplace tension that romantic tension like it's 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 a it's a great dramatic watch I, I got to watch it for this and it was very um it was a real okay. treat so I was like oh god it's nice to see it's going in that direction so you're you're kind of upping the stakes and then following some of these these characters that we've gotten to know and love so I'll kind of get into the 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 bits um around it actually and get into the nitty-gritty but first I'd, I'd love to know a little bit about um, your backgrounds on this project, um, like something of sure. such a of a big scope, must be really hard to get off the ground. Yes, I think correct, James. Well, I, I'll I'll um so so quickly, and then I will let James speak. So, um, Safran Pictures is a company which is myself and Siobhan Burke, and James Mitchell has a company called Soho Moon, and we joined forces in so twenty fifteen, James. Yes. Yes. So I suppose it was it was trying to. I mean, we're small outfit. James has had a huge past um, and very accomplished, and we came together in an effort to try and I suppose bring both our strengths to the table to try and actually get some international drama going because, as everybody knows, the landscape of actually making TV drama has become really difficult and continues to be because you're competing with the streamers and you know we're trying we were trying to make you know Irish Irish led Irish IP work and um so we came together and we we started um the first thing that we made together was acceptable risk which went out in 2016 and that was our first foray on an international co-production fabulous so James kind of masterminded the elements of actually financing a show. So I should let James do the talking on that. Um, well, I don't know if there's that much masterminding involved, but um, I, I don't know. As, as you'd have gathered, I am, I am not, in fact, Irish. I'm English. But um, I've been working in Ireland or with Ireland for a very long time, um, decades, in fact. Um, and I don't know, it's always seemed to me to be kind of self-evident that if you're trying to make Irish drama, um, you've got also, you've got a pool of extraordinary talent to draw on. You've got, you've got writers, you've got directors, you've got actors. I mean, um, it's, it's amazing for, uh, for actually a very small population. But that same small population means that you've got a public broadcaster in a very, very small market. Um, and there just isn't the money um, available to actually make big drama shows. I mean, even before the streamers ever came on the scene. So I don't know. It's always been self-evident to me, but then maybe it's easy to say if one is kind of an outsider that... If you want to make Irish drama, I mean, yes, of course, you pull together the Irish elements and so on, and you need an Irish 
anchor, which in our case has been RTE supported by, by Screen Island, but that's never going to get you anywhere near financed. Um, so you have to think internationally um, from the beginning. I mean, before you're developing this thing rather than after you've got a set of scripts. And um, so as I say, it, it, it seems quite simple, but I'm not sure why more people aren't doing it. But um, anyway, that's basically what we've done. So is this something mm. that you guys like creatively produced? Would you guys have gone to the creator and said like, look, we're thinking about doing something. Is there anything in your back pocket? Like, how do you guys pool together the, the talent, first of all, to even put together a pitch for funding? Well, we knew that we wanted to work in the thriller genre. Um, and Siobhan Burke, our other partner, actually came up with a rather brilliant notion, which was to build a, a thriller series around Cab, which nobody had done. And so what you get with Cab is it is actually uniquely and distinctively Irish. Um, uh, and it is, in a sense, police procedural. Um, but it's not actually part of the police you, because you've got civilian members of CAB as well. So it's actually almost a perfect mix. Um, it's just a brilliant wheeze to use CAB. Um, and then this has been part of the, the DNA of Kate and Siobhan in particular is to actually use a researcher, um, Sheila O'Hearn in this case, to actually research CAB and... Um, get to know some people in cab so that you're actually we're not making a documentary but we are making something that uh, tries to be plausible um and um and cab turns out to be fascinating so mm. it's yeah. uh, it's it's proved to be a great vehicle i, I love that it yeah. kind of it organically touches the higher level drug dealers the um the, the politics behind everything and then the financing and like i think in a, in a way, you were talking about all the Irish talent. There's a lot of kind of international infamous <laughs> Irish criminal talent out there who are operating on such a grand scale that what like it really authentically justifies that truthfulness of going, oh, well, maybe, you know, there could be some very shady uh, Irish people at the top. Um, and, and, and again, like I think it plays into that. Did you guys know specifically you were going to... Um, sort of go to Antwerp? Was that something that, you know, you guys maybe felt around first to to, to see where would be the natural partner? Because I know there's like co-production funds and various different things. Do you guys find a, um maybe like a team of, like another company that you like to work with across in, like as, as that co-production model? Like I'd be always interested to see how that might play out. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, over the years, I've done um, a lot of international co-production in a lot of different countries. Um, but as it happens, and it is pure chance, the place that I live in France is actually Lille, which is in northern France, uh, and is actually 10, 15 minutes from the Belgian border. Um, so I've actually... 
um, watched the Belgian industry develop around their tax shelter funding opportunities and put a small toe in the water. I did a, a drama documentary a few years back for RTE uh, called Citizen Lane about Hugh Lane, the founder of the Hugh Lane Gallery and so on. And we did the post-production in Brussels, um, really as an exercise to try out whether the Belgian financing setup works. And I'm happy to say it does. Um, so that's that's how the Belgian connection came about. Uh, I don't know, Antwerp is just a place that's worth visiting. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's an amazing city. It is an amazing city, yeah. And I suppose part of the process, James, too, was, you know, um, you know, um, we brought the fab Peter McKenna in as part of the writing team and um, and Peter and Siobhan are both very keen, as we all are, on trying to give opportunities to new writers because it's a diff difficult landscape in Ireland for writers to actually, um, you know, get their toe in the door and be part of um drama scripting and um i guess i guess james is right we identified antwerp and then we realized actually it's an international port and that gave us loads of story ideas and james and peter went to antwerp and you know that really um influenced you know what was possible dramatically in terms of the writing and then in kind of parallel we went on a trip to Belgium, you and I, James, and we started meeting with production companies over there. And um, and in the end, we were uh, introduced to Potom Kino, our Belgian co-producing partners, and we started our relationship with them. So, I mean, it's it's from the, you know, so you've got the creative process going on on the one hand, and then we like to think, James, we have our own little creativity going on on, on the back end, which basically is hours and hours with movie magic budgeting, trying to actually make sums work. And, uh, and personally, for me now, a big learning curve, because we have a very long financing plan. Um, we had co-produced... Um, the first series we did together with a Canadian partners in uh, called Facet Four in based in Montreal, and we did our post production in Montreal. So we were now in a world of three territories. So you get into an Irish, Belgian, Canadian co production, and then it's like, okay, so how does this work? And then you're into applications to Screen Ireland and Telefilm in Canada regarding getting your treaty up and running and and you're working with two sets or three sets of figures you know Ireland and Belgium and Canada and trying to drag them all in together into one document and um and each territory then has it, it's almost like am I allowed to say this James will stop me if I'm wrong it's almost like not sub-financing, but you're kind of, you're looking to the finance available in each of those territories. So in the same way that traditionally in Ireland, you know, you look to the broadcaster and obviously Screen Ireland, who are really supportive, and your tax. Similarly, Belgium has a Screen Flanders and the tax and broadcasters, and you're looking at tax deals in Canada and broadcasters. So suddenly you have... Will I will I dare to guess how many how many moving parts in your evolving, and then you know I read a draft of a script and I go 
absolutely no way. <laughs> Cut that right back. We can't afford to do this or, you know. Um, but we've been very fortunate that we have great partnerships with um, both Potem Kino and Facet 4. And I guess one of the nice things is, is on a second season, when you're working with the same people, there's a shorthand. So you already have the relationships and that kind of is a pleasure because um, it, it does really help, you know. And then in Ireland, you know, we we chose to set ourselves in in a fictitious um, cab office in Limerick. So we were engaged with, you know, filming in the regions. And, um, and obviously we made the first season during COVID, which was another nice, um, just, just in case you didn't have enough going on in your brain. <laughs> and restrictions, COVID restrictions and the different restrictions in each country and trying to move people around and mandatory hotel quarantining, yada, yada, yada. Um, so we uh, we went back to Limerick this time and it's uh, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, James? You know, I suppose um, we clearly wanted, you know, and believed in trying to not have everything Dublin centric. And we felt that it gave it gave us a kind of a, a new look on Ireland in terms of dramatically and our characters. Not that I'm saying Dublin isn't fantastic, but everything is sort of set, or a lot of things are set in Dublin. And um, and we did ably try to get our regional uplift, you know, on because you're you you are entitled to it under Section Four Eight One. Although I think that's finishing this year, but it just became it's really difficult. It's an, it's another obstacle in terms of um trying to make things in the region because. In theory, it should be, you know, it should all work really easily. And then you get boots on the ground and suddenly if there's another production running in the region that you're in, all the crew are gone. And then you're literally trying to bring people. And actually, in our instance, you know, a lot of the Limerick based or that region based um, people, some who we'd worked with previously, they would basically all relocated to Bray because that's where the, the the most continuous work is, you know, and you realize that, um, you know, if there isn't a show happening in, you know, in the studios in Limerick, well, then people can't continue in the industry down there because there just isn't the work. Um, but, um, yeah, but actually, and again, we'd have to, we'd have to say Screen Ireland were really supportive because they're big believers in the regions and they have this new fund and, we applied to it and that really helped us in trying to make all of that work. And I know as well it's film and Limerick they're trying to train people up specifically in that field but it's sort of like by the time you realise there's a deficit in a field it's nearly too late you know like your production <laughs> can't wait around for someone to like be trained up in a specific field or task that it, it, it's sort of and then as well, like you train someone up and then they're like alright well I'm going to go to Dublin where I can work continuously because there's such a deficit um, and did you guys hmm. feel maybe there was a bit of a a kind of shift because I know for a while it was near impossible to get um crew and casting but I'm wondering if you're doing on something on such a big scale and did maybe maybe it wasn't affected by it yet but it's been a hundred days I'm just wondering has the strike made a difference has it freed up crew to work on your projects is there is it, like did it just not fall in that time it wasn't in our timeline so we you know we filmed um 
from March until June was our shooting period. So uh, we were way before any of that. Um, so I don't know, actually. I mean, I, I, I believe that there are derogations for a lot of, or some, some projects have, have um, are staying going for that reason. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't, to be honest with you, we were, we, we had, this was a very tight timeline in terms of delivery because we're going out on September 3rd and we stopped where we finished our shoot in Antwerp on June 10th. Wow. So to actually turn around our post, um, I haven't really been in touch with what's going on. And I was just like heads down um, in terms of other projects, um, you know. Um, but I will say, you know, as um, it, it is difficult to compete with the monies that are paid to crew from the streamers. And, you know, historically back in the day, you know, there was sort of an indigenous sort of, world going on and then there was the big the big projects that came in but the gap has really diminished and what you find is people they're going to choose you know the big shows because it's again it's economics where people are concerned it's like if i can get a better rate and a longer gig sorry not available you know um which in turn i guess does help the the upward movement of crew but it's um it's a delicate balance um, and and something on such a big scale, you can imagine how those like even smaller, like very regional, very kind of lower budget things are really struggling to find people for specific crew roles, like alone like short film schemes. <laughs> You're like, oh, my God. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that it it is great, you know, all the training initiatives that are going on. And um, but I suppose, you know, it's. um. I think we're it's kind of based on inward projects. You know, the industry seems to be um, you know, had if they stopped, what would we would we be left with with indigenous work? Yeah. And that I suppose uh, it's like you guys are creating such an interesting world by bringing that link to Belgium in by um you know like kind of and and Canada as well like you are kind of creating more of that kind of like focus because again like I mean how many territories does Hidden Assets sell to? Well, I don't know I haven't counted but quite a lot um, so it sells to the US obviously it sells to Canada and to Belgium it sells to the UK the BBC has acquired it in the UK it sells to Spain Portugal France um Actually, curious enough, it sells pretty much most places other than actually chunks of continental Europe. I mean, there's no sale in Germany or anywhere in, in the Scandinavian countries. Um, I, don't, I can't explain why, but um, that's kind of the way it is. But going back to what, what Kate was saying there and what, we, what you were talking about, the, this business about inward investment in Ireland um, is obviously in overall economic terms for Ireland and for the Irish film industry is really good news. And training people is a good idea and the regions, all of these are really good ideas and it's, it's hard to argue with any of them. But the, there is an underlying issue, which um, Kate was touching on there, which is the inward investment that is coming from 
the big streamers, for example, is not coming out of sentiment. And it's not because they're all Irish Americans or something. Um, they're coming here for, for economic reasons. And the danger, I think, becomes, uh, first of all, that prices in Ireland have rocketed. I don't just mean general inflation. I mean, the inflation within this industry here is enormous. Um, and at the same time, what you've actually got is the streamers all cutting back in a big way because they've all overspent. I mean, they're not making any profits. I mean, they're adding subscribers, but they're not actually making profits. So you run a risk, which is that you will have all of these trained people and um, you'll have all of this infrastructure and so on. But I don't know, Netflix and Apple and people are, as I say, they're, they're not going to be coming here out of loyalty or something. Um, and I'm not quite sure what you do. And that other than to say they're really the indigenous industry needs to be boosted and supported as much as possible, uh, because ultimately, I think, you know, for the future of the industry, Ireland has to create it and own its own IP. Yeah, I oh, know completely. And it, you do feel the shows that have really kind of made the mark like this is one of them, but there's been like compared to years past seems to be fewer and fewer like really local shows and the shows that are Irish that are doing well are actually from the UK, <laughs> you know, like Derry Girls and the Young Offenders, like they're they're UK shows that are made by Irish people. And you're like, oh, OK. So, you, yeah, you do you do sort of feel that that there isn't, you know, like gone are the days where there'd be like a standout drama always on that you'd catch where now it's like, oh, you're yeah, like you're. You, and I suppose maybe that's the nature of how we're filtering and receiving our um our our shows, you know, like if I'm not on the player, maybe I'm not going to have a show advertised to me that I might like. Um, and that's that's the thing where, you know, like if my parents were watching TV back in the day, like maybe I'd sit in on an ad and go, oh, yeah, I'll make an effort to see that, you know. So I don't know, like maybe I like things are definitely changing. I think it's as it's as much a distribution issue because, you know, like where are people getting their content? And it, it like it doesn't seem to be in those traditional ways for those types of shows as well. Um, like I'm I'm just curious to. So you guys will go on broadcasters. Would you then do a streaming run at the end? Like, would it be worth your while to 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 find that or to to get those audiences once it's kind of done its run? Well, we we have a mix, which is I mean, Acorn, which is one of our primary funders, is in fact a streaming service. Um, uh, but I suppose I mean I don't know recognizing one's market. I mean, yes, if you're talking to broadcasters. And this is not just Irish broadcasters. It's tr true, at least in my experience, all public broadcasters will always say the same thing to you, which is that they're very keen to make shows which appeal to, oh, I don't know, a demographic of people aged 18 to 35 or something. And you say, those people aren't watching television. Um, they literally do not watch TV. Um, so it's not even aspirational. It's It's actually delusional to think that you are you know, appealing to that audience. And it is a fact that if you take, for example, BBC One in the UK, um, the average age of the BBC One audience is 61. Um, 
And RT1, I can't give you chapter and verse, but it won't be very different. Um, so uh, one needs to bear in mind, and we try, that probably we are making shows for a somewhat older audience. And where that has, <clears throat> has a bearing is particularly in the pacing of shows, which um, I don't know, you can take fantastic shows like and, uh, um, Breaking Bad or whatever it is. Um, I don't think the average person over 50 is able to understand what is going on. Um, it's it's a Sorry. pace. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think, and I, I, and I think <clears throat> RTE, um, the, the player has become a better interface. I mean, in the, in its early, um, time, it was, used to drive me crazy because it would crash and you'd, you know, you'd be in the endless loop of ads again and you couldn't manipulate it. But I do think that, that, that has been certainly, I'm delighted to see, and they're making a bigger effort and, you know, as a, someone living in the Midlands, I use Sky as my interface and it, and now I have an icon, which is the RT player. So it's, it's just, it, it has, that has really helped because I know, I mean, I have kids in their twenties. They never watch conventional television. They binge watch. They, you know, it's either, and they, and they, you know, Netflix, shared passwords, Disney plus Amazon. I mean, there's such a, um, where do you go to the choices like, you know, Legion, and then it's actually trying to find your way through it. So I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's all, the landscape has all changed. Everybody's playing catch up, you know, the traditional model of the ads being on the telly and that's all changed. It's now dissipated into Facebook and, you know, yada, 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 yada. And um, so, yeah, so, and, and I suppose what, um, what we're about is trying to actually um, make Irish IP owned work, which, you know, we can make, which we're in control of, which we can then disseminate across the world. And um, yeah, and we hope to continue and, doing it. And it's a very, it is a very exciting show. You were saying about pace. I'm like, I love the pace. It's very, uh, you know, like full of twists and turns. There's like there's lovely little reveals there's you know like there's there's just the right amount of kind of character development that is happening as the plot is progressing from a to b to c so it's lovely it's lovely to, to well catch we were you know, we were really really fortunate i mean we've fabulous bunch of writers um you know and uh working with peter mckenna and our story producer vicky owens and siobhan like kraken team and then I have to say, incredible crews here, guys. I mean, hats off to every department in Ireland, right down to trainees. We had such a an amazing bunch of people working with us in Limerick. And the Limerick Film Office, really supportive. Everybody really, you know, working hard for us. And then, you know, we, we did bring some crew for periods to Antwerp. And then we... we <clears throat> had an amazing crew in Antwerp and um, we've been really fortunate, you know, and we, um, Paddy Sullivan and um, our um, Kadir Barati Balchi, amazing directors and our editors. I mean, we, we have been really, 
um, and I don't say this in a schmaltzy way, but we, we've been very lucky with the team on this particular show. And I think we have actually probably are punching above our budget in terms of what we're what we've achieved. And that's thanks to, you know, the creativity and all of the hard work. Uh, loads of hard work you know and it's up there with those kind of american like criminal minds you know like all these kind of like crime fighter people you know in a room you've their you've their quirky little behaviors their glitches yeah. with one another and it's and it really sets nice and then you have the two sort of different cultures your two leads so chat to me about season two it's 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 different we have um slightly different cast a different you know we're we're following sort of our antagonist from the gecko, which is really, which is really exciting. Just tell me a little bit about um, sort of where you guys were thinking of mixing it up in this from the last one, like as from a producer's point of view, like, did you guys know, is this, you know, like, is that these are the elements that worked? So you want to lean in more to them? Um, uh, yes. And um one has also got to do things like um, restraining one or two of our creatives who are, uh, I would say, trigger happy um, in terms of being, you know, absolutely ready to kill off um, anybody. This is a producer's nightmare um, that, you know, you suddenly read an outline and, and find that actually three people whom we have invested a lot of time and money in are actually now dead. Um, this is not helpful. Um but also in reality, in the reality, for example, of cab, and uh, this is part of our research, people actually don't stay very long in cab. It's, it's seen as a stepping stone, particularly if you're successful. It's seen as a stepping stone to, to hire things in your Garda career or, or whatever. So, for example, um, the lead character we had in season one, having had such a success with season one and, you know, getting her man, as it were, or getting her woman and, uh, and so on, would, in fact, in cab, move on um, to higher things within, within the Gardee. Um, but, yeah, we knew we wanted to conclude that story. Um, there, were, there, was, there were still things open at the end of season one. Um, and, by the way, we have exactly the same kind of issues now because we are developing season three. Um, and we've we've kind of told the story of seasons one and two, but this team is going to go on now, um, on to their next case. So that's that's kind of kind of the current work. That's or or I don't want to give too much away, but they're let's say their next case moved on to them. <laughs> and people can find out of the second of September. Um, but yeah, yeah, like it's, it's sort of and then again, like it was, it's a nice plot point because everything in this feels truthful. Like it feels like you know, like it's not this like over the top heightened thing where someone you know drives a motorbike over a helicopter with a ramp or something like that like I mean all these things are things if you work in like a business or an organization like these these elements are things that feel truthful and realistic and not like sensationalist mm. yeah. well yes one hopes that it is underpinned by reality and, and uh, you know to some extent though one actually opens up a newspaper or whatever if one's still in the business I happen to like physically reading newspapers um and finding that that actually um 
particularly Irish crime is not only keeping pace with us, but actually is ahead of us in some respects. Um, Season four so sorted. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> yes. these, these people are, are, are really moving around. Um, you know, whether it's mm. Spain or Dubai or wherever else it is, they're, um, they're everywhere. Yes, they're definitely international. <laughs> and very interesting because you guys are dealing with three separate um, entities with regards funding, the presumably that already have a stake bought in for their regional broadcasting. And then you guys are manning the creatives, the, the directors. How, like, when, like, or when do you guys step in? Do you guys, like, leave people to be do you guys like to kind of like dip in and out of the creative process do you guys kind of let the the funders have their notes or like I'm I'm very curious to see how all this is sort of managed like project managed on a day-to-day -day basis because it's a lot of like you said earlier of moving parts yeah well Siobhan our partner um we would have to she wish she was on the on on the session here now so she could take a bow i mean she does she does an extraordinary job in the management creatively of all of our partners and um and i guess i suppose we we're very collaborative as a team and we would be um we we would be across uh, you know we would be there i mean boots on the ground every day of the shoot and um you know post um the, the the COVID world, I suppose, uh, created extraordinary new abilities, you know, where you can, you don't actually have to be in the territory, you can get cuts and be live for ADR and, you know, in Ireland, although um, we did go to Montreal for part of post, you know, to be there. Um, so it's, uh, it's pretty full on. Do you agree, James? Uh, it's a, it's a. Um... It helps, though. I mean, we are collaborative, but it does help that we come from three different backgrounds as a team. Um, Siobhan comes from, I suppose, what I would say is largely a theatre background, um, and and therefore feels, I think, probably very comfortable in the area of dealing with writers and, and directors and, and actors and so on. And Kate comes from more of a production background. Uh, and I, for my sins, a long time ago was a was a lawyer. Um, so in terms of structuring and treaties and making companies fit together is something that I'm quite familiar with. So we do we do bring different skills to to the party. Does that mean you're a free legal consultant when it comes to people pitching story ideas that veer into that legal realm? Uh, not, not really. Well, I mean, I wouldn't claim to be a useful legal person. I'm not. I'm not up to date. Currently. I mean, we we employ lawyers. It's um, the useful thing is possibly that one actually knows the questions to ask and what to expect of those lawyers. Um, so yeah, I get to do. I do. I I don't actually do any legal work as such, but um, I, I get to deal with the lawyers, um, uh, particularly in in Ireland and Canada, because these are both jurisdictions which are based very much on English common law, and where there is this extraordinarily excessive amount of legal work that goes on around 
film and television production. Um, I mean, continental Europeans are always absolutely amazed by the amount of legal work and the, the scale of legal fees that get incurred on, on any project. Um, you know, they do contracts on one side of a piece of paper. We do contracts that run into hundreds of pages. That sounds expensive, yeah. very expensive. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just yeah. very interested to how that collaborative process works. So if you guys, do you guys say, chat with Peter, go, this is the idea for the season. This is, you know, where this, this seemed to work really well the last time. This is the feedback from the last season. Let's, you know, and then let him go off and come back to you with, with, you know, like a full episode outline and treatment and then you know he feels it out to his writers like how does that integrate and then at one point does the funders kind of sign off on on that as well well that process all happens but it all happens as a result of the first step in fact is the creation of a writer's room um so there's a story room in which yes peter mckenna is there but so is vicky owens our story producer so are the writers, the shadow writers whom we employ, the writers whom we're trying to bring on. So, I mean, it's quite a big room, actually. Um, and from our side, it's pretty much, I mean, it's not exclusively Siobhan Burke, but it's largely Siobhan on the producing side who's in that room. And that's a week's worth of them just kicking around exactly the questions you've just asked um, and going away and coming up with with an outline and yes there is then a uh, again a collaborative process with our not all of our funders but our two or three key funders um, and getting their input and their reaction and is this something they're going to be comfortable with and so on and and when that has got a shape um, and there are outlines I mean yes then then writers start writing and would there be any, um, like, you don't have to go into specific specifics, but just like if someone is like, uh, in Antwerp, we don't like that, that reflects badly on our politics and we'd prefer not to have that in, like, would would they be notes, and I'm not saying specifically about that, but would they be notes that you guys might get where you're like, actually, we feel culturally this is inappropriate, or, or is it more, like, would you get notes where I don't think that character would do that at this point or this doesn't feel truthful or would they be quite hands off? No, no, they're quite hands on. I don't think we've ever had anybody actually say we don't like the way you're portraying our city or our place or whatever. But we do actually encourage, particularly because none of us is Belgian. Um, none of us speaks Flemish. Um uh, and they have a very specific culture, even if it's only defined by not being French. Um, uh, so, yeah, we, we we actually want to hear from them about that just wouldn't happen. Um, but what we expect is we expect, please, more constructive notes than that. What would happen? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's okay. That's great. So, this, so they're the free story consultants that <laughs> you say well, yes. books. The only thing I mean I can tell you is I don't think that we are that popular in the city of Antwerp. The city of Antwerp has a um, an annual sort of bursary or whatever you want to call it prize that they. It's not very big. It's about fifty thousand euros that they hand hand out once a year to one production. Um, 
for having portrayed Antwerp in a way that the city fathers of Antwerp regard as being, you know, positive and so on. So we, you know, we applied for this, we didn't get it. So we're, um, I'm not sure we're that popular in Antwerp. And, and like, is that if you're an ongoing season? Like, what if your thing is concluded? You just get to keep that money and have a big party for your casting crew. I, I, I guess. I think. I think it's probably somebody on Antwerp City Council who thought that you know, part of their promotional marketing budget, whatever. I mean, Antwerp is one rich city, by the way. It's, um, it's you know, it is the second biggest port in Europe. It has become, coincidentally, our story is not about drugs, but actually. Antwerp is now the leading port of entry into Europe for cocaine. Oh, well, um, it was Amsterdam for a long time, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It comes yeah. in on these these um, fruit ships coming in from South America. Um, and the other sort of curious bit of information one picks up along the way is that for a long time, apparently cocaine goes through your system. So it's possible to actually measure consumption in a city. Um by analyzing wastewater and so on. So London was the city with the biggest per capita usage of cocaine for a long time. But it has been overtaken by Antwerp. So they're not only importing the stuff, they're using it. Is there any sort of themes that you guys can see on the horizon that maybe you'd like to bring into future seasons? Or is that a secret that we're not um, in there? But I'm not sure that we're ready to talk about them. Uh, mm. Yeah. But I mean, I, I would say broadly, though, that one of the things, I mean, CAB gets a lot of press coverage, obviously, in Ireland for um, what I would call fairly routine things. I mean, the sort of typical small time thing that goes on is, I know, some small time drug dealer in Dublin. Uh, gets himself a new Rolex or something. The first thing he does is he goes on Facebook and says, look at my new Rolex. And, you know, the next thing is cab, you know, visits him um, following day. There's a lot of that goes on. But I think increasingly what is happening with cab is the cab has become interested in white collar crime, uh, which is what particularly interested us because um, it's almost... Well, I couldn't really say there's a culture of white collar criminals getting away with it necessarily, but there is a sort but, of. But there is, though. Like Anglo, <laughs> they were, they were <laughs> let go with everything. There's yeah. no one is held accountable for anything. Right. But I think there is also a sort of popular sense, um, misconception, basically, of saying that white collar crime doesn't have victims um, because there are no immediately apparent victims. But there are, in fact, there are massive consequences to white collar crime. Um, and I don't know, speaking again as an outsider, part of the difficulty here may simply be because this is a small country. Um, and I don't know, the lawyers and the accountants who are involved in this kind of thing or who facilitate this kind of thing, uh, they're your neighbors or you went to school with them. Um, and it's very difficult to put your neighbor in jail um for to, to lock them up or whatever but, um, or they have dirt on you that's another yeah. thing <laughs> Where, well, like yeah. no one is clean i think that's why like a lot of people get away with things that's my theory anyway where people have dirt on other people and like part of it is you know either there's fiscal things at stake but it's like or they 
leverage leveraging leveraging information yeah and and this is this is what's nice about that it's it's the the season one especially when you see how all the tendrils are linked it's it's true like again like nothing is too sensationalist nothing is too convenient it all feels very grounded in in a sort of in a sort of like depressing logic where this is how the world is you know and like you know the people at the bottom or the people like getting kind of killed off at the very beginning and throughout for no for no other reason than to like to you know to forward the agenda of the people at the top and and that's that again why it's thematically so relevant and i'm looking forward now to seeing how season two plays out what has the response be to season one actually since you guys have seen it in has it gone down differently in different territories has it been popular in a place maybe we wouldn't expect no i mean i it seems to have been uniformly um Good. I mean, well received. I think in the UK, um, where it went out on on BBC Four, uh, there was that, and I say this as a, as an English person, there was that typical English condescending thing, and quite a lot of the kind of commentary on Twitter was, you know, gosh, this is amazing. It's an Irish show, and it's really rather good. Um, it's kind of, you know, I mean, that was that was a big boost for us that actually the BBC acquired it and it did really well and you know that was that was nice to see. No, I think by and large we were we were actually very well pleased and obviously our funders were because they all came in for a second season and uh, and we'll be hoping to put together another interesting finance plan for season three. <laughs> and um yeah. Any 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 new locations? You don't have to name them, but like any any new faces. Uh, okay, well, I don't know about faces, but, but I I, th I think there is a sense that uh, we need to get our atlases out because um, I don't think we're sort of tired and fed up particularly with with Belgium, but I think it may be time for us to 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 move on. Um, and actually, rather helpfully, the, all the research with CAB actually indicates that. You know, CAB has kind of gone global, basically. Um, so it's quite useful for us. It's it's a really it's a really exciting show. It was it was a, a real joy to watch, and I can't wait now for season two. I would actually sit here and ask you questions all day because there's so much I want to know. But I I will let you guys go because you have so much to do. And thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you very much. You're so welcome.